host, Baron Soka, interviewing your usual host, Corbin Bartol, to talk about Florida. Florida is attempting to regulate the speech of social networks, as are many states, but Florida is doing it in a way that is, one might say, clever, one might say a little more sophisticated than what some other states are doing. One might also say just even more unconstitutional in different ways. Uh, specifically uh, using uh, analogies to campaign finance law, claiming to uh, restrict the ability of social media sites to uh, moderate the content of political candidates. So Corbin and I wrote a piece about this in Lawfare, and uh, Corbin is here to tell us about the law, what it does, and why it's unconstitutional. So Corbin, welcome back. It's good to be here. Doesn't actually feel much different being on the other side. Well, so the, tab- the tables have turned, and we'll see how things go today. Uh, so tell us about this law. What, what does it do? The, this is an ambitious law. You use several adjectives. I would, I would use the word ambitious. It, which, which, by the way, I'll say is interesting because at the very end it says it, it will not conflict with federal law, which you wonder if it makes the whole thing pointless. But let's put it uh, that. Yes. It allows users of large social media websites to opt out of what the law calls post-prioritization or shadow banning algorithms. And you and I have discussed what's the best shorthand for that. And I think it's uh, it ensures that if you want it, you can have everything be chronological in your newsfeed, no kind of uh, algorithms giving reach or amplifying It says that you have to describe your terms of service in detail if you're a large social media website and that you have to keep those terms relatively static. You cannot change them more than every 30 days. The law says that you cannot deplatform a political candidate running for office in an election. It says they don't even have to opt out of post-prioritization or shadow banning. They just automatically shall not be subject to it. And one thing I'd also point out among this sort of people say parade of horribles as in hypothetical situations, I think this is actually a concrete parade of horribles, but it gets worse because if you look at the definition of shadow banning, I think the common sense definition of that word means having the reach of your post diminished without you knowing it. But actually under the law, it includes any elimination of your content. So actually this law may basically just make content moderation illegal, period, for a political candidate or any user who opts out. Uh, I mean, that seems to be their goal. And you wonder, would they really want that? If you actually look at the worst of the worst content out there, is that really what you would want? And it is one of those signs that maybe the law is a little bit more performative. Because as I said at the outset, then it goes on to say, well, in any time this law conflicts with two thirty, Section 230, the federal law, of course, that makes websites immune for the speech of third parties. And, and for moderating it. Well, then the state law gives way. And so, well, what are what are we doing here? Uh, maybe it's good politics, but that's the law in a nutshell. Okay, and, and who's the they we're talking about? Who's pushing this bill? So this is Governor Ron DeSantis and leadership in the Florida state legislature. Uh, Ron DeSantis has been promoting this bill in a package of legislation uh, that is sort of red meat to his Republican base. And one thing that's interesting about this, we obviously don't have time to get into the, the full package of bills, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting melange of 
actually pretty standard bills. He has a data privacy bill that wouldn't be out of place in California or in Virginia. And then bills like this one that are, I would say, wildly unconstitutional. And they're all getting packaged in this rhetoric about fighting the Silicon Valley oligarchs and avoiding a real-life Orwellian 1984. So I, I would give Ron DeSantis this. I think he's playing skilled politics. I think he's doing what he thinks he needs to do to position himself for a presidential run. And I actually think he, it, it, by that metric, I, you know, he's probably doing a pretty good job. But the bills are getting rolled into one package, even though they're very, very different in their level of imprudence, shall we say. And just as a note, uh, the Florida legislature has one of the shortest sessions of any state legislature in the country. I believe it ends in early April. So uh, it seems likely that this bill is going to move quickly. And uh, unless uh, Ron DeSantis has a sudden change of heart, I imagine we should we, we should expect to see this uh, signed and, and uh, that litigation will commence soon. Do you agree? Yes. Yes. And it's really wild what's going on. You, you and I both have been following... Today, we're talking about Florida, and we're going to be able to easily talk at length about one law in a package of laws that are problematic. He has a voting law that would restrict mail-in voting. He has a quote-unquote riot bill. So there's all this stuff going on. There's several laws we could talk about in Florida alone. But then this is going on. Texas has a social media bill. Several other states do that are moving around. And... Uh, I mean, I'm barely able just to track the the Florida one. I actually think you're more on you're more in tune with what's going around. Uh, pardon me, going on around the nation. Well, uh, it's all the same bad idea, just repackaged in different forms. And and before we get into why it's a bad idea, let's let's just note we're not going to spend a lot of time on this today. But uh, uh, setting aside all the First Amendment uh, issues, there's a, a clear federalism problem here. I mean, states are not supposed to be regulating interstate services, let alone the inherently global medium that is the internet. This law, though, uh, essentially regulates the the content moderation practices. It may indeed, as you say, uh, essentially ban content moderation with respect to political candidates. And certainly the clear intent of the bill is to retaliate against uh, social media sites for removing political candidates uh, like Laura Loomer in Georgia, who was uh, removed when she was a House candidate, uh, and of course also the uh, the former president, who we're not going to name on this show, uh, was uh, was taken down for his content. Right, the bill the bill is clearly uh, aimed at that kind of content moderation. So, uh, what's the problem with that constitutionally? Sure, it's pretty easy. Laws that discriminate among speech based on the content of the speech are constitutionally suspect. Laws that specifically discriminate based on uh, the specific content being political are even more constitutionally suspect. Laws that compel private actors to speech uh, to speak are constitutionally suspect. So this one is a triple whammy of constitutional uh, problems, this bill. And when you say when you say constitutionally suspect, that sounds like a state legislator might hear that and think like, yeah, everything's constitutionally suspect. Of course, it's going to be litigated. So what? What's the big deal? What What does that term of art mean? It means subject to what's called strict scrutiny. 
which means that you need an overridingly important government aim and it needs to be, the law itself needs to be narrowly tailored to meet that end. Very few laws meet this. And I would note in particular, you hit the political speech, you're really in trouble. Uh, that means you really are typically dead in the water. Now, what I've just described though is the modern sort of constitutional framework. And as you kind of note, they, they kind of, they're terms of art and, there actually are many Supreme Court cases that we can dig into that that make this much more vivid. And one of them is Miami Herald versus Tornillo. It's a case from the 1970s, also involves Florida. There was a 1913 Florida law that required a newspaper to give a politician space in that newspaper to reply free of charge to any criticism about that politician. I believe it was actually a political candidate, much like this law. A gentleman named Pat Tornillo, a sort of notorious local school union boss, invoked this law wanting space to respond to criticism in the Miami Herald. The Miami Herald challenged the law. It went up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court unanimously, unanimously declared that quote, the choice of material to go into a newspaper, whether fair or unfair, constitute the exercise of editorial control and judgment, and that that is a core First Amendment right, your right as a speaker to your own editorial judgment. And that's what this law fundamentally, putting aside content uh, discrimination and speech discrimination, that's what this law runs into headlong. Okay, so how do we know it's unconstitutional? I mean, why, why does that decision control here? Well, that's an interesting, that, that's a, a wide open question that you have a lot of people who are trying to legislate in this area. They're testing that question. That is the fundamental question. And they're looking for different analogies that they can use to get out of that law, that, that case controlling. And they're gonna have a hard time because We've updated, the Supreme Court has said that the internet is not special for First Amendment purposes. All of the rights that you have under the First Amendment carry over. It is said that it doesn't matter if you're a newspaper, if you're a, a private entity speaker, you have this kind of control over what you say and what speech you host. So the analogy is, is pretty rock solid, but they come up with various reasons that this might be different. One of which, and you're the expert here on it, but is that they, they've pulled up the fairness doctrine out and tried to raise it from the dead and say that it applies here. Okay, so what about the fairness doctrine? I mean, the government actually has regulated the fairness or the neutrality of, of, uh, of one of the major media in this country before. Why, why well, can't the, it do that here? The story of the fairness doctrine is, is fascinating, and we could go into a long spiel on that. The very, very short version is let's just rewind for half a second to the 1920s when radio was burgeoning. There actually was originally no governance over which radio frequency you used at what level of power in what location. It was a total free-for-all. And the government set standards, licensing standards, to make sure that frequencies were only getting used by one person in one area at one time. And over the decades, for political reasons that I, we've probably discussed on this show in the past, and we certainly will soon uh, again, this kind of got politicized and a fairness doctrine got put on top of it, saying that if there is limited 
spectrum on the airwaves. And there are more people who want to broadcast than there is available space for broadcasting. Then the people who are sitting on airwaves have licenses from the government to basically monopolize that little piece of space need to be even handed in what they present. Now, frankly, I, I would be happy to talk about the constitutional problems, even with that doctrine. But the differences should be absolutely clear here. You've got a very limited amount of speech bandwidth, shall we say, and therefore maybe you should have certain obligations when you take up a piece of that. This is categorically different. We live in the age of the internet. We live in the age of the information, as James Glick says, where our problem now is sorting and understanding the information that we have from uh, you know, the many, many outlets that are available. The fairness doctrine, to whatever extent people should have been talking about it as a, a valuable thing in the past, and I think it was questionable even then, really don't understand, I think, the degree to which we actually live in a world that is the opposite of the one that justified it. Yeah. And of course, the government was licensing broadcasters. So there was clear state action and the fairness doctrine was was a regulation of that. And that's just not the case here. I, I also uh, just uh, was reminded of uh, in reading uh, the D.C. Circuit's 1979 decision in Midwest Video 2, which we'll put a link into, that uh, that even in 1934 in the Communications Act, uh, the 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 concept that gave rise to the fairness doctrine was actually relatively narrow. That Congress had, uh, as the court noted, uh, Congress rejected still another proposal that quote would have imposed a limited obligation on broadcasters to turn over their microphones to persons wishing to speak on certain public issues, and 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 Congress didn't do that. And yet, that's exactly what this state law and other uh, state laws being proposed now seek to do to to essentially force private parties to turn over the microphone and give a a platform not just to reply on on the on a uh, to a personal attack against them but to use the the microphone so to speak of private media so I, I always say that what's being proposed now is a is a kind of bizarro version of the fairness doctrine it's actually much more draconian than what Congress uh, originally authorized back in in 1934 and of course, it was Republicans who, from the 1940s on, told us that the Fairness Doctrine was offensive to the First Amendment. It was President Reagan who uh, who ended the Fairness Doctrine and said that we have to look to uh, to, to private action, to market forces, uh, to remedy concerns about bias. So it's it's just uh, richly ironic that those those same people who claim the mantle of Ronald Reagan today are in fact now arguing for a much more draconian version of the fairness doctrine. But but we've talked about this before. We'll link to a past episode we, we did on this. Uh, let, let's get back to the, the Florida bill. Uh, the other argument we always hear made, it's being made here again, is that uh, social media uh, don't have uh, the same First Amendment rights as newspapers because they're, they're public fora, they're the modern town square. What's your response? Well, this is yet another of the Let's throw everything at the wall and, and see what sticks. And it is another instance you mentioned the switching of opinions. I mean, we really are. The world is upside down and it, it's not all one way. But yes, we can list out, especially on this episode, the way in which, the ways in which Republicans are adopting arguments that they previously thought anathema. I mean, with the Fairness Doctrine, it's literally taking something that the Kennedy administration weaponized against conservative radio. And now they want to do it. Um, 
The state action doctrine in this case, we're talking about another thing you mentioned, which is that First Amendment restrictions apply to state actors. It says Congress shall make no law, and then it's applied to the states through the 14th Amendment. Nothing about private actors. So when we hear public forum or town square, people generally have a common sense meaning of that word. And it, it has a technical legal meaning. And that technical legal meaning ties closely to this state action doctrine we're talking about. To be a public forum in which you can regulate speech basically only with time, place, and manner restrictions, you need to be a state actor. Uh, and why are these websites not state actors? Well, they're not state actors because they're not doing something that is exclusive, uh, traditionally and exclusively a state function. Now, why is that the rule? Why is that the strict rule? Well, it was confirmed recently in a decision called Halleck in a, an opinion written by Justice Kavanaugh, joined by the other four conservative justices, confirming that that is the strict definition. In that case, it was public access television. Uh, there's a lot of language in there that makes it clear that it would expand out quite easily to the social media platforms. That was confirmed by the Ninth Circuit in a decision involving YouTube. I'll use some language from Halleck. It says, quote, if the rule were otherwise, if it were less strict, all private property owners and private lessees who open their property for speech would be subject to First Amendment constraints and would lose the ability to exercise what they deem to be appropriate editorial discretion within that open forum. Private property owners and private lessees would face the unappetizing choice of allowing all comers or closing the platform altogether. That is our exact situation. As Kavanaugh said, merely hosting speech by others is not a traditional exclusive public function and does not alone transform private entities into state actors subject to First Amendment constraints. Yeah. It's pretty clear, and yet we keep hearing that argument made over and over. The, uh, the next argument that gets made very similar to that is uh, these are just like uh, shopping malls and the Pruneyard decision uh, where the Supreme Court upheld uh, the uh, a California constitutional requirement that uh, shopping malls make their make their space available to others to to distribute pamphlets uh, that's that's often invoked here uh, what's your response this is another one that fits very neatly in the bucket of wow I can't believe the the way that times have changed and the way that things have flipped I mean when I was in law school 10 years ago at Berkeley the class was really stoked on Pruneyard, the class being generally uh, left-leaning people, as was the professor. They thought this was amazing. They thought the really important thing was that everybody have a, a nice equal soapbox. And if private property got in the way of that, too bad, man, it's Berkeley. Yeah, well, um, th these ideas have been stewing since uh, Jerome Barron in 1967 developed what is now called media access theory. And I spent the first 10 years of my career in this field uh, arguing against that, and Republicans were too, and now they've embraced it. It's, it's really yes. gobsmacking. So to, now that I've noted the, the weird flip, which is very strange, but it's, it's not really analogous legally either, actually for a lot of reasons, but I think only two are worth mentioning at the moment. I mean, the first is under the Fifth Amendment, and this often gets overlooked in the discussion of Pruneyard. The shopping center, for reasons of its own, didn't really argue that having, it was student pamphleteers on its property, 
they they didn't argue that that diminished the value of their property in any way and and maybe it didn't in that context this is a fundamentally different situation where if you force platform mainstream platforms like facebook and twitter to host uh hateful harassing content it's dra it, it basically trashes the value of the entire product the whole thing is is ruined you end up basically with a counter network effect people are going to flee your platform because they are appalled by what they see on it and the bad will chase out the good in all likelihood the second problem in addition to it being a taking of property if you force them to hand over their resources to spread that speech is that and maybe we live in a different age but uh the court said in pruneyard that the shopping center was not likely to be associated with the speakers I've always thought that actually was a little questionable even at the time, but now it's really clear. We have basically reached a societal, uh, consensus is too strong a word, but it is widely accepted at this point that these platforms are responsible for what is said on them. They can have real world consequences, starting with uh, the shooting at Comet Ping Pong Pizza years ago and leading into very obvious current events, we now know that these platforms are integrated into society and people hold them accountable for what's said on them. So they have a First Amendment right to disassociate from stuff that they don't want to host. And those people include not just uh, activists, but also advertisers who don't want their products shown next to hate speech or incitement of violence, etc. And of course, these companies are in the same basic business that newspapers are. Newspapers uh, wouldn't sell ads to people who were pushing that kind of uh, content because other advertisers wouldn't want their speech, their products uh, advertised next to to that sort of speech. This is this is just not new. Uh, the, the, the last thing before we move on to campaign finance, uh, everyone always says here, oh, but we're dealing with monopolies and monopolies don't have First Amendment rights. Uh, but the court addressed exactly this issue in Tornello. What 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 was the argument, and and how do we know that uh, having market power doesn't change the First Amendment analysis? Absolutely. So let's save for another time the discussion of the vibrant social media market and the weakness of of the monopoly on the merits, which I think is very weak. But um, I could talk about that for a long time. We don't need to today, as you mentioned, because there's a very clear legal answer here. Because in Tornillo, it was brought up that the local newspaper market had been consolidating immensely by that point in the 70s. And to the, the point where many, many, many towns, in fact, a great uh, percentage of American consumers had only one newspaper to choose from. And in some cases, that newspaper was also owned by the radio station. Yes, exactly. And so the court accepted that this dynamic had, quote, placed in a few hands the power to inform the American people and shape public opinion. Uh, and it accepted, I'll quote again, that the public has lost any ability to respond or to contribute in a meaningful way to the debate on issues. So it took for granted those very stark terms, and it still said, look, the First Amendment trumps. You have a right to editorial discretion, even if you are a local monopolist in information. And once again, I don't want to make it sound like that's the only thing I would stand on here. I think the markets in our case are much more dynamic. But from a pure uh, standpoint of law, 
Tornillo could not be more clear about the weakness of the quote-unquote you know, monopoly argument. Okay, so uh, everything we've discussed thus far is, uh, is generically applicable to all of these laws. But as I said at the outset, the Florida law is different in that it focuses on uh, political candidates and uh, attempts, it, 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 it does not directly uh, apply campaign finance law, but it draws a great many analogies to campaign finance law. Our, our lawfare piece goes into this in great detail. Give us the short version. How does this connect with the concepts in campaign finance law? Sure, sure. So it'll be interesting to see how much campaign finance law comes into play as this bill is passed and gets challenged in court, because it doesn't explicitly invoke campaign finance principles. Although, as I mentioned, DeSantis has kind of rolled it into his rhetoric with mail-in voting and election integrity and all that fun stuff. The basic problems, though, if you want to try and jam this bill into a campaign finance rubric, I say basic problem. There's actually several problems, and and each problem is bigger than the last. You know, the first is campaign finance law governs, at its core, contributions. You contribute to a political candidate, and that is what's subject to regulation. And I should add, it's subject to regulation to avoid the appearance of quid pro quo corruption. If you have terms of service and you enforce those terms of service, against somebody who is, say, a disinformation super spreader. Or, or say, gonna... inciting an insurrection to steal the election, just hypothetically speaking. Just hypothetically speaking. Just say that happens, okay? Um, that is not an in-kind contribution. That's you enforcing your terms of service. So campaign finance law is really kind of a non sequitur here to begin with. But even if you don't buy that, and I'm willing to accept that there are certain people out there who, ju- who just simply are not going to accept the notion that the terms of service are being applied neutrally. And to those people, I would then move on to the notion that under federal law, media are not subject to the campaign finance laws. Now, at first, that sounds narrow, but really, the more you dig into it, the broader it gets. It means that a news story, commentary, or editorial distributed through a broadcasting station, newspaper, magazine, or other periodical publication is exempt from these laws with things like periodical publication updated to mean the internet, to mean websites, to even mean blogs. The way I put it in our article, if you're blogging in your garage and you're not doing any kind of the due diligence or consulting with experts that say Twitter does in its fact checking, you still fall within this media exemption. So Twitter and Facebook and platforms like this clearly fall within this exemption from campaign finance principles. Now, you could, if you were the state, say, well, to hell with federal law, we'll pass a state law that doesn't have this media exemption, which leads you into the third biggest and most fundamental problem of all, which is that the First Amendment trumps campaign finance principles every time automatically. Yeah. And, and note how narrow the, the, that, that law from 1974 is. It doesn't even mention books, for example. So the Federal Election Commission has, uh, has, has, has struggled with this and has understood that that uh, media exemption was necessary to prevent the law from being struck down as unconstitutional. So it's, it's developed this broad understanding to uh, read into that that statutory media exemption 
First Amendment principles, which is that you, you campaign finance law does not trump the First Amendment. That's right. And that ties into another thing that comes up in this campaign finance stuff. You mentioned Laura Loomer of Florida and Matt Geitz of Florida is another one who's done this. People who have filed complaints with the Federal Election Commission basically saying that the problems with Twitter and Facebook doing content moderation under the media exemption is that they are not doing legitimate scare quotes, journalism, and that they're not neutral. Now, we've covered why it doesn't matter if they're legitimate journalists. That's not in the media exemption. You don't, the media exemption does not try to define legitimacy, but it also doesn't require neutrality. And the example I like to give with this is you mentioned books. If you are a book publisher and you publish a book by the political candidate herself, your expenses, if you expense her pub, uh, publicity campaign, that is not a in-kind contribution under the campaign finance law because you're subject to the media exemption. That is how not neutral you can be and still be subject to the exemption. And I would say also, by the way, right-wing radio back in the day was attacked and these arguments were leveled against the uh, Mark Levins of the world. And they quite rightly said, no, 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 neutrality is not at issue here. Uh, I am a media entity and they, you know, they have always prevailed whenever this kind of argument comes up. And, and you can see how if they had lost, that would have been essentially another version of the fairness doctrine. It would have been clearly unconstitutional to, to bar them from, uh, from speaking freely about candidates that they supported or to require them to give equal time to somebody that they opposed. And yet, that's exactly what Republicans are now arguing for. That's what this bill would do. The fundamental way in which everything has flipped in ways that I find both fascinating and bewildering is, is free speech about letting everybody have liberty to speak or is it about making sure everybody has equality to speak? And it was not that long ago that there were pretty set camps with, say, Democratic federal election commissioners going out of their way to press the equality angle. We need to give people equal soapboxes. We need to make sure that corporations don't stifle smaller voices. And Republicans taking the corporate freedom Citizens United angle. And those two sides are flipping in ways that um, it's still happening. We haven't seen how, it's, how the dust has settled. It's very fluid. We live in interesting times when it comes to the partisan valence of speech rights, and particularly when we get into election speech. So it will be interesting to see as we go forward how Republicans and Democrats talk specifically about election campaign finance law. Well, I just would point out that uh, Republicans, uh, good, principled, thoughtful Republicans were making these, these arguments for, for the First Amendment uh, trumping campaign finance law during the Trump administration. So really, this change that we, we are seeing here has really only uh, happened in the last, say, two years. That, that I saw a little bit when I testified uh, in, in 2018, alongside uh, Diamond and Silk before the House Judiciary Committee, but now it's just it's just exploded, and there's just a real disconnect between what uh, what Republican state legislators, people like Governor Ron DeSantis, 
the conservative commentariat are saying and what actual conservative campaign finance lawyers and First Amendment experts uh, themselves said. And just another example of that, uh, Professor Eugene Volokh has suggested that the Florida law might be constitutional, and he has some arguments we can talk about on another podcast. Uh, but it was he who who wrote quite beautifully just a few years ago about how the uh, the the press uh, the media exemption for uh, FEC purposes is not limited to the institutional press; that it is a functional exemption that protects the the things that the First Amendment protects, not just established media. And and yet, uh, even he seems to be uh, uh, finding ways to, to to justify the Florida law. Remarkable. Uh, now, also. Um, one angle we haven't talked about on campaign finance law, uh, does it matter whether uh, a publication is explicitly a party can- a party or a candidate organ? Uh, does that affect its its editorial rights under the First Amendment? Well, that's that's a caveat that I probably skipped past a bit in talking about how much you, you don't need to be neutral. So the one rule is if you are explicitly a party organ, if you are controlled by a political party, that is what it takes to get you outside of the media exemption and subject to campaign finance law restrictions. Okay, but in general, you can't use campaign finance law to equalize speech, which is clearly what uh, what this Florida law is trying to do. That's a rationale that was explicitly rejected in Buckley versus Vallejo, the, the groundwork uh, decision that that uh, upheld the basis of campaign finance law. The court specifically rejected equalization of speech. And as you noted at the outset, it said that campaign finance laws are justified only to the extent that they avoid corruption or the appearance of corruption. Uh, and the court noted that uh, you just you can't get the fairness doctrine through the back door of campaign finance law. And yet that's what we're seeing here. Uh, now, there's a, a last category in the bill that uh, uh, purports to use consumer protection law concepts to to prevent content moderation or to restrict it. We've talked about this before. The first uh, interview that you did with me was about a paper that I did last year uh, that goes into great detail on this topic. Uh, but but real quick, what, what does the, uh, the Florida law say about this and uh, why is it unconstitutional? Sure, sure. So... I, I think of this in two ways. There's there's two ways that you can misuse consumer protection law or principles in a way that runs you into the First Amendment. And the first is, okay, so you don't explicitly regulate expression, but we all know what you're really doing. And if you do that, and you're really just targeting First Amendment activities, you will trip into First Amendment scrutiny. And the great example of that is a 1983 Supreme Court case in which uh, there was a tax on newsprint and ink, which it's like, okay, okay guys, we, we see what you're doing. And a newspaper, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, challenged that law. And although it was not literally aimed at expressive activity, it clearly singled out newspapers. That law got struck down. But then there's also just the fact that consumer protection principles can be used in a way that really do directly regulate speech. And I think that this case, although it falls into both categories, you know, DeSantis, if you listen to his rhetoric about political censorship and Silicon Valley oligarchs and all that, you know, he's going after them because of their expressive activity. So it does fit into the first box, too. 
But the more enlightening discussion is the second box. You're taking these websites and you're saying, wow, nice, uh, nice speech you're hosting, but hey, you've got to tell us exactly how you choose what you host and what not to host. You need to set it forth, quote, in detail. You need to apply those rules in a consistent manner. I, whatever that even means, we could do a whole episode on the difficulty of defining that. And you cannot change your rules more than every 30 days. Now, although very much on their surface, those sound like consumer protection issues, that is in combination a speech regulation. That is clearly a speech code. And the example I would give is post-election, groups on social media popped up that were promoting the concept of Stop the Steal. And some of these groups gained as many as 300,000 followers within 48 hours. Now let's have a hypothetical in which the platforms have to have in advance their terms of service set forth in detail and they cannot be changed. Now, just bear with me and assume that maybe there's a Stop the Steal group that doesn't quite fit into hate speech. They're not targeting a, a group by race or religion, and they're, they're not fitting within whatever the terms of service are that are, quote, in detail beforehand. That platform is now stuck for 30 days letting that group proliferate. And you it makes it very vivid when you see that a group can get 300,000 followers in two days, how much you are dictating the amount of speech that a platform has to leave up or tolerate or host or amplify when you set its terms of service for it in advance by regulation in the way that this bill attempts to do. Uh, well, amen to all of that. Uh, I would only add that uh, the idea of allowing individuals or, or state AGs to bring suit uh, for uh, alleged deception because companies don't live up to their terms of service. They don't they don't, they're not they're not neutral they they don't uh, follow the lines they draw in defining hate speech and so on uh, the analogy to campaign excuse me to consumer protection law assumes that this is just like enforcing say a, a privacy policy or the nutritional label or warning labels or whatever but those those things those terms of service those forms of speech or advertisements or warranties or or, or all of the things that are traditionally policed by consumer protection law are commercial speech. They are uh, essentially in service of proposing a transaction. That's why consumer protection law can regulate them. What we're talking about here, how you draw the line on hate speech or what what uh, constitutes misinformation or, or uh, vaccine uh, denial or whatever, is obviously not commercial speech. It's obviously non-commercial speech that is fully protected by the First Amendment. So all of the justification, all of the constitutional rationale for policing that goes right out the window. Uh, and of course, uh, all of those things involve uh, not objective uh, questions of fact, like how many grams of fat are in your product. Uh, all of those things involve subjective questions of opinion. And there's just no way that the courts are going to allow the state to regulate the, those uh, kinds of things in the name of consumer protection, or or, or to compel uh, detail or to compel explanation about what constitutes hate speech. I mean, 
I will just, I'll stop there and refer everyone to the long paper we did last year, which we'll put in the show notes. So uh, Corbin, uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, look forward to being interviewed by you to talk about these subjects in more detail because there are many more bad arguments that are being made in service of these bills in other states. You and I can just keep switching chairs like Woody Allen and bananas. I would love that. Uh, I was hoping we might uh, we might do like a little Annie Hall where we uh, we we bring in uh, the famous famous uh, figures like Marshall McLuhan and and have them explain to people you know like you oh that's funny I heard you talking about uh, Justice Scalia or uh, conservatives on the court well I happen to have Justice Scalia right here and uh, here's what he has to say and Justice Scalia comes over and says uh, I, I heard what you were saying you you know nothing of my work. Uh, that that scene, that scene really to me is what we've been discussing today, and uh, it's just remarkable how little today's conservatives seem to care about what Justice Scalia himself, Justice Kavanaugh, other leading conservatives on the court have said again and again about the consistent application of the First Amendment to to block the government's meddling in media. Fear not, listeners. I promise we will let others into our into our discussions in later episodes. Look forward, look forward to it. To it. <laughs> Thanks, Corbin. Thank you, sir. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org. <laughs>